Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Julie Keel, and with me today is Mike McPeak. Hello. And Jeff Sire. Hello, everybody. And this week we're going to be covering the book Ultima, which is the sequel to Proxima, which we covered just a few weeks ago. And in Proxima, we discovered ancient alien artifacts on the planet of Per Ardua, hatches that allowed us to step across light years of space as if we were stepping into another room. The universe opened up to us, but now in Ultima, the consequences of this new freedom make themselves felt, and we discovered that there are minds in the universe that are billions of years old, and they have a plan for us, for some of us. But as we learn the true nature of the universe, we also discover that we have countless pasts all meeting in this present and that our future is terrifyingly finite. It's time for us to fight and to take back control. So, yes, we read um, Proxima, and that was you know pretty decent, and it just like bled right over into Ultima, so we had to continue on and... and um, yeah, the story continues basically, and just as a um, you know you know refresher for um, Proxima was where um, hatches were discovered on Mars, and you could step through the hatch and you went to this uh, planet called Perardua. Well, they were you know that was one way to get there. They shipped some people out on a spaceship. There was one fellow that you know was kind of like the uh, the. Um, well, I suppose you call it the suicide mission, where you know you went off before everybody else, and and then there was the weird, I don't know, solar sail type life form that was sent out oh. there as well, which actually does make another appearance in Ultima, but I was disappointed sort of. with that. Yeah. I mean, that was massively disappointing because that could have been <laughs> such a cool thing, and it was just like. Um, okay, yeah, it's still out there, and it's, like, yeah. catching the oh, sunlight, and that was it. Okay, good. I wasn't the all, uh, the only one that would, because in the big, uh, in the first book, they, he, I think he could have cut that character out, and I don't think really could have spoiled anything. Nope. Um, uh, and so you get to the second book, and you're, and they kind of, they're getting towards the end there, and they look up in the sky, and they see the spark, and they, uh, communicate with it by radio or something like that and basically yeah i'm still here that and was that's about it. it and that's it yeah. yeah i didn't see why he had that character in there in the first place like i didn't advance the plot it didn't seem to have anything to do with anything you know i when i was reading proxima uh, the only mulligan i was giving him is that hopefully in ultima they, he was going to pull that out and it was going to play some role in you know the the history that just wasn't you know happening in in uh, proxima but no i mean just no it 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 was yeah that whole character that whole storyline could have just gone away and the book and the rest of the story would not have been affected in the least um it brought nothing to the story well i think the only thing that it did was it was a reason to get uh people on mercury for the launch um well, they were also launching the uh, the generation ship, too. So, I mean, they still could have cut it out, and they still would have been on Mercury. I mean, they, they um, so you could have been introduced to the hatches and everything else that was going on there. So, yeah. Yeah, I think could have cut it out completely. wouldn't have ruined anything. No, and I suppose you could argue that there was that competition as far as who was going to be first and which technology was going to win out, and... Yeah, you could have skipped all of that, and it would have been fine. So I don't know what happened when they were writing this, if they just kind of lost their way and forgot to get around back to it or, you know, what. But it would seem like that was such a thing that could have been, and it was so disappointing that, you know, it was barely mentioned in book two. Yeah, it was a – he put it out there, I guess, as a a sentient AI that eventually develops – feelings i guess you'd say yeah. uh, certainly self-preservation which is you know something uh because at some point she gets um uh, she kind of rebels against them at uh, was that i think that was in the book um one. book one i believe yeah yeah uh where basically she just kind of goes radio silent 
because in order to communicate, she's got to sacrifice more of her sisters to put out the communication array. And she, after a while, she realizes that even though there's millions of them, uh, there's is it millions that kind of act as one or they communicate. Uh, I, I can't quite put it in the words, but it was a, a communal effort. But basically, they were committing – her sisters were committing suicide in order to communicate or they had to sacrifice. I guess the ultimate goal was to have one uh, of these life forms, whatever you want to call them, make it to um, Perarjoa and c- circulate around it. And to what point, I don't know. I mean, yeah. what's she going to do when she gets there? Just watch. I know it was that was the whole thing. There was this whole struggle, this whole, you know, sentient being that had you know evolved and into essentially a life form, and and then nothing. And uh, anyway, so that was a big disappointment. <laughs> However, there was much to the rest of the book other than that. That was just something that it was such a well, gaping hole that it it just needed to be mentioned. But. Yeah. And if you wanted to take a sentient light form, life form, and you know have it evolve, the call you certainly did that more than there was more of a payoff there for that than there was this uh, solar sail sister or whatever you want to call her. Yeah. The the in book one he was the colonization unit, and in book two, okay, book two, spoiler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> book two has like three. Was it three different parallel universes we were going with? Um, basically, yeah. when you go through these hatches that are just kind of magically appearing in various places, um, you go th- through essentially, well, well, what they're calling a John Bar hinge, where it's, um, oh, what is the actual definition here? A John Bar hinge is a point where history pivots, where the path forks. And so there was a couple of John Barr hinges. One was which, in book one, one of the characters suddenly had a twin sister that you know she had no memory of prior to that. Um, in book two, you had John Barr hinges happening in... What was the first one? Like, British the fir- the first The first big one was when the, uh, the Chinese ship, the Nail smashed into the uh, kernel True. Uh, deposits on Mercury and that switched right. everything and bumped them into the other parallel world. Which, I, isn't that the one where they wound up in some place that I will just call England? Roughly? Um, let's see. Uh, they... There was two. One of them, uh, two of them went through the hinge or through the hatch, and two of them, yeah. and the rest of them were on the spaceship, which got propelled through a what a rift in time, or well, in, into a parallel it, it universe. Was, it was like that they got hit by the wave of the explosive wave that went out from Mercury. Right. That was my impression of what happened there. That they somehow right. kind of, you know, that that wave when it hit their ship, kind of, and, and I didn't didn't really understand why. It happened to flip their ship into the parallel universe, but it didn't do it for, it seemed like, anybody else in the solar system. Well, yeah, and everybody else was, and that that's actually a theme that happens several times in this book, is that most everybody experienced the universe like we kind of experience the universe. It's just, you know, a linear timeline, and we just go through living our lives. Very few people... In, in as depicted in the book, actually were aware of this John Bar Hinge, and they, I think they called them artifacts. Basically, there were a couple. Whoever was behind these John Bar Hinges was kind of sloppy. Um, for instance, I mentioned the the lady with a twin sister that she had no recollection of. Well, there was all kinds of stories and things that were. Um, you know, they had shared memory, or, or you know, at least the twin sister had the same memory as this lady of particular events during their childhood, which the original lady is like, no, I was there by myself. Um, which so it was this very elaborate story that went with it. Except there was this little exception, like the mother's grave that mentioned only one daughter, not two. Um, so there was kind of like a hiccup um, in the in the John Bar Hinge. And so that that happened every time there was a John Bar Hinge. There was some anomaly that uh, kept creeping in and, and okay. several times. I have a question about people. about it. Like the, the John Bar Hinge, the way it describes in the books, is the point at, at which the two timelines diverge from each other. So seeing that 
the grave of the mother in Paris, that wasn't the John Barr hinge. It was an no. indication right. that one had occurred, right? Right, yes. Right. Okay, I wasn't 100% sure on what, what they were actually referring to when they said that, but I thought it was, right. yeah, it's the point where the two timelines separate from each other. Right. Yeah. The first okay. hinge was when they drove the nail into Mercury. The second yeah. hinge was when uh, Earthshine... Um, drove. I'm going to say the first no, hinge was when before, the hatch yeah. opened on Mercury, yeah. when that twin sister showed up. That was yeah. the first one, yeah. and it was a very small and, one. Yeah. And then after that, then yeah, the they, nail hit Mercury, and then the John Bar hinges got bigger and bigger and bigger. But then you find out that other ones must have occurred in the past, right? Like, right. To find out when when the uh, the two different worlds diverged. Right. Like you know, essentially, for lack of a better analogy, Atlantis. They talk about the drowned kingdom or something. So, you know, the, they there was evidence of this drowned kingdom, but nobody had any history around it. And so they, you know, they're just trying to explain it away. So the the John Bar hinge concept—I've never heard of it before. And as far as I know, it's only in this book. And I should actually Google that nope, to find out. No, it's out. not. I just—I'm looking at it on Wikipedia. There it has an entry for it, and it's uh, in science fiction criticism. A John Bar hinge is a fictional concept of a crucial point of divergence between two outcomes especially in time travel stories. And it talks about different places where it's been used, and there's quite a few of them. So you know, I th- uh, Bring the Jubilee, uh, which is a, a novel by Ward Moore in 19, as far back as 1953. So, yeah, it's, it's a, a writing thing that's been used in science fiction for quite a while. Okay, but it, it, I don't know that I've ever heard it called that explicitly. I mean, I think... The John Barr Hinge. Yeah, looking at the same article it, on Wikipedia, it says, it says uh, often the refers derived from from the Jack Williamson novel The Legion of Time, serialized in 1938. So huh. it refers to one action of its character John Barr, in which picking up one of two objects is a major turning point in history. Right, and it also talks about uh, John Barr hinges often refer to small nondescript events that had an important effect on history, but because of time travel, the outcome of the choice or event was changed, leading to a different future or an alternate history. So I think we've had experience with these. I mean, like any time you do time travel stuff, if, if there's like a John Barr hinge in it, but this is the first time I'd ever heard that term used explicitly in the book you know probably the first one i'm going to go out and limb here but probably the first one that any of us experienced i just got thinking about the uh star trek episode uh city on the edge of forever basically that was a john Barr hinge where bones went back in the future altered something and their timeline changed and then they had to go back and change it back so right. it didn't have it, it didn't have a name at that time or we didn't realize it but once you put it in those terms yeah then you realize that there was something even like marty mcfly and back to the future he was trying yeah. to prevent the john bar sure. hinge. yeah his own I, I think one. we're very the the a, a john bar hinge is a very familiar concept right. it's just the term yes. yeah that i've I'm never really seen my head and going Really, you know, it, it took me a while to understand what they were talking about. Yeah, so there was there were several John Bar hinges in the in. Well, there's a couple in Ultima, and there was certainly more in in or a couple in Proxima and more in Ultima, including spoilers. Um, you had a major one that threw you back into to Romans times, where Romans were a space well, faring not. Not back in time, but sideways, well, where the okay, Roman yeah. Empire never fell. I have a hard time I, referring to Romans as like you know twenty first century, but right. I got the feeling that you never really went back in time. No, you no, you never did. You never did. Yeah. It just felt that no. way because to me, Romans are two thousand right. years old. Incas sure. was the other one, and they too are thousands of years old. So it, it, you're right. It, you did not go back in time. But it was it did feel like an older civilization because, you know, the Romans were still Roman centurions. They they hadn't they were they, you know, there were parts of what we would consider modern day technology that is required to be space going that they did not have. 
Um, but they had just managed, we mentioned this when we were talking about Proxima, um, there was this energy source known as kernels, and so the, the, the Romans and the Incas had discovered these kernels and just, you know, through trial and error, figured out how to put them to work and built spaceships. Um, I could have swallowed his whole story about the Romans, uh, the Roman Empire never falling and that them them going to space. I could have swallowed the whole Roman story if he just had the simple thing to say, oh, yeah, and the Romans discovered a kernel bed on Earth, and they based all this technology on kernels. Because, like, the idea that they didn't find the kernel still until they got to Mercury, and they, you know, so they're, they're right. you know, jet-setting around the, the solar system, and they don't even have friggin' computers. Yeah. Okay, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's just not going to happen. And they describe their ships as sailing ships. And I, and not like solar sailing ships, like, you know, well, and just, Roman just the materials as well. Like, they, they, like, leather. Most of their stuff is still made out of leather. And, yeah. like, oh, okay. And that's just, yeah. That's just not. It was kind of hard realistic. to imagine. Yeah. yeah. Although, yeah. on the other side, because, because the kernels were so powerful, if they had said that they'd found a kernel bed on Earth, I could buy into that then because like right. okay we just structure everything around this one energy source that is essentially unlimited right. and you can just brute force your way through everything with it so okay yeah i can i could i could at least buy into it more like i just felt right. this was a little bit yeah. silly right yeah the well, because thing if the, felt pretty silly if they would have found yeah like i said kernels on earth and they utilize that. They could have jumped past, you know, in essence, they did jump past the Industrial Revolution and a lot of that stuff. Uh, steam power, well, they did have steam power, but, you know, petroleum-based power, all this other stuff. You kind of jump past that. Um, and, you know, and I guess I I could see maybe how they could jump past computers because if all... Uh, I'm try- I, I can't put this into words exactly, but, but going through the whole industrial revolution and everything that we did here, I thought I think it kind of led up to uh, computers because this was a gradual path. But by discovering the kernels, you kind of leapfrog and you jump past a lot of this stuff. And yeah, but if you don't have computers, you're never going to be able to even re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Like, <sighs> like I don't know. They were to... still using slide rules during the Apollo missions, so right. Yeah, but they had they were computers that were that were well, calculating all their reentry vectors and everything yeah, and their, their trajectory. It, if you put, I, I, they, it did mention that they had a, an entire squadron, if you want to call it that, of I think they said Arab navigators. Yeah. Um, and if that's all you were doing was math, and there's a reason they named them Arab because, you know, Arabic numbers were, um, are what we use that include the yeah. concept of zero, um, which Romans did not have. And, you know, so if I, I hesitate to, to say that computers are the end all be all because I, I mean, I, I, I've seen the pictures of the lady standing next to the pile of paper that she had to by hand verify for the space program so the idea that you did math by hand and were space i think it's possible it's completely horrifying as far as a career goes perhaps yes. but you don't I don't think you have to have computers to figure out those calculations. You just need a hell of a lot of computing power, whether that's well, human or silicon. Okay, but but think like that led to the development of the computer. So if you go like that was one of the major things. Like okay, this is taking so much time to do this. Right. Yeah. That we're going to start using machine. There's got to be a better way, right? But and the, the idea that you would you would have a group of people that wouldn't figure that out if people are and would cheap, just keep though. saying, "Oh, well, we'll just keep adding more people," and like that just if people nah, are I, cheap, I mean that's where it comes are, down cheap. I mean if you've got slave well, see, labor, I, that's an, that's another thing. Like one of the reasons why we don't have widespread slavery today is because of the industrial revolution. Is that machines? just become so much cheaper than feeding and housing and clothing a human being that it's not even cost effective to like slavery becomes not cost effective 
So, like that, that was like it didn't make sense that they're in this you know modern world and they still have these huge slave pens. Like even on the ship, the idea that they have this a whole floor that's dedicated to their slave pen that it just doesn't make well, sense. Right, and and they they actually talk about well essentially attrition. You know that you raise the mortality rate. You raise a bunch of slaves because they're all going to die. And you don't yeah. care if they die because that's their job. They have to die because if they all lived, you don't have enough resources to support them. So your job as a slave is to, like, you know, die. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that well, was a little harsh. Well, I'm, I'm going to take a step back here, and I'm going to postulate an idea that I think what the author was trying to go for was if you kind of noticed each time you had a John Bar hinge or major John Bar hinge like that, the world kind of regressed a little bit. It did. Um, and I think, but and the thing was, so when we started out with what we would call our current timeline, we were very cautious with the kernels. We used them very sparingly. We didn't want to use them within the solar system because we didn't know what they were going to do. Well, and you'll come to find out there's a mastermind behind all this, and this wasn't fitting into their plan. So I think that's why they triggered the hinge and caused the next uh, you know iteration of Earth to happen, where they um, not so advanced i want to say and so therefore they weren't so worried about uh using the kernels they were more liberal in using them and also more liberal in building hatches we never uh in our current timeline we never built any hatches but the romans started building and then when the next hinge came along the incas were just out there popping them out you know like you know uh cookies out of an oven so i think the idea was for each um uh, each time each hinge, it was to speed up the building of hatches and the use of uh, kernels. Absolutely. And, so, and I think that's so you, what he was trying to do is that you kind of lower your civilization level, let's say, to the point where you're not worried about the bigger picture. You're just kind of the here and now. So do you think it's it's that each time they, they have the John Barr hinge that they're they're creating this world that it doesn't even have to be realistic? That it's just because it, it's kind of based on like this kind of thrown together, okay, we need to, like, uh, what we were doing isn't working and we were going to try something new. I think so because the the premise of the book is that you have, Jeff, you haven't quite finished it yet, so spoiler <laughs> yeah. here too, but, you know, well, and you know about it because there's this subterranean life form that yeah. uh, when they crashed into, uh, they essentially blew up Mars trying to get their attention. And, and the, the idea is that every planet out there has this subterranean, deeply embedded in the core of every planet, simple life form that, you know, has been there for eternity and is going till eternity. Except eternity isn't eternity because it's finite. Spoiler. Um, and they're all networked together, sort of. Right. right. And so those are the, the life forms that are actually controlling these John Bar hinges. And what they really, really need is more hatches. So whatever they need to do to get more hatches built, that's their objective. So they don't care about individuals and you know the impact on their lives. They don't care about civilizations and the impact on their lives. They don't care about planets and the impact on you know whatever life forms might be on that planet. They're looking at massive time scales across massive uh, distances, you know, you know, taking a, essentially a universal scale um, to the, to whatever the problem is when you know, there's several well, problems. And across multiple uh, universes. Because um, by the time you get to the end, uh, and I'm... It's been a while. It's been a few weeks since, well, probably about a month since I read it, so I can't remember exactly. But basically, when you get to the end... They say that there are a multitude of universes out there, and the purpose of their uh, universes are timelines. Um, All of the above. Uh, yeah, basically. And so their purpose for building hatches, I guess, was to try and stave off the end time, as they called it, because basically all these they, – they equated uh, this – the what do I want to call it? It's not the galaxy, but their world. To a pot of boiling water, where each of these universes in there are little, each galaxy, each timeline is boiling around in this water, like a bubble. And when one of these bubbles get to the edge of the pot, it bursts. Well, that's what was happening here: was that our world was approaching 
that was the end time, was approaching the edge of the known sphere. I, I don't remember what they called it, but I mean, it's not just the galaxy. It's the whole sphere, all these multiverses within this thing. And so that's what they were trying to stave off or figure out some way to prevent. And that was the purpose of the kernels, because didn't they say that these kernels were basically harnessing energy from the, the, the void? Yeah. The edge? Yep. Uh, you know, and I'm having trouble explaining it, but that's basically the purpose of all this. Um, and so they were trying. To, that's what they were trying to ultimately control. That's why we were individuals and societies were meeting us. They were looking at the bigger picture as a whole, as what do we need to do to preserve uh, all these universes? Which was interesting. Right. Spoiler: um, at the very end, these the subterranean life form, and there is a, a name for them, like Neustratum or something like that. Anyway, um, but it's not that they held ill will against anybody or anything in particular, any life form, any planet. They just didn't care. It was uh, such a different scale. You know, Horton hears a who type of thing, you know. You got, <laughs> you, got you got a Horton on one side, you got the dust on the other, you know, and the, that it was like two different scales like that. So in the in the the, the finality of it all, they actually did exhibit compassion as best that they could sure but um you know it just it was they they were just operating on a different plane of existence literally well it would be no different than us walking across grass we don't care uh, that the grass is there i mean we care we, we we like the grass because it's nice and green and it's pretty but we don't care as we walk across it what the outcome will be well it's like when we you know go to dig a hole in the ground to build a house we just start tearing crap up we don't care if there's <laughs> rabbit warrens down there or ant hills or whatever else you know it's just like it's a hole in the ground i want to build a house let's do this you know and if you happen to come across oh i don't know human bones in that oh you might stop a little bit and say hmm, maybe we should rebury these but you know for the most part there's very few things when you start in with a backhoe that are going to get you to stop and think twice about what you're doing so you know it's kind of that level of of i got my own things i'm doing here you know you guys with your little lives and your little planets are just you know kind of not my worry but yeah but it's a this is a it's really what's interesting is what i found most interesting about the book ultima was you know mulligan's left right and center as far as these cultures go but just the con the idea wrapping your head around what the hell would a 21st century roman culture look like you know what exactly would that be i mean that's that alone it can be a fun thing to to think about yeah well it didn't look like um i mean techno uh, technology wise they you know in certain areas they advanced but it seemed like they didn't it, it's kind of like they went back took uh, our romans from 2000 years ago put them in a separate timeline kind of gave them the stuff they needed but they didn't advance that much the same way with the incas because i mean in the in the the incas were making sacrifices to appease their gods i mean you didn't really see any um you know, cultural advancement. Now, the Romans did accept yeah. <laughs> Christianity. They were talking about they had a different name for Jesus. I don't remember what it was. So they did do that. They did kind of follow through on that. But there was no, you know, treat our man better, no higher consciousness thinking. I had a, I had really issues with, with like, when he picked first the Romans and then the Incas and then the idea that that they just go forward and like you said they don't develop at all culturally yeah, right. that that like it, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all like I think when you look back in history you can compare cultures that were at the kind of the same level and you can see areas where you know they developed in one direction and and the other and the other one might have missed something right like i i've always i've heard the comparison that if you look at the vikings and compare them to like the romans they were trading they were doing a lot of the same things but the vikings never developed the triangular sail so they could never sail into the wind and it's just they just never figured that out so they they 
compensated for that by having these long ships with these guys, you know, that they would, uh, you know, if they we, if we need to sail into the wind, we just drop the sails and we just row. Uh, that's, you know, perfectly okay way to overcome that. But it's, I think it that's a good example of, okay, here's these two cultures that are, you know, relatively similar in a lot of ways. And then just, you know, these guys developed one thing and these guys didn't develop another you know developed it in different ways like the incas didn't i don't think the incans had the uh the wheel right so they did all of this great stuff but they never developed the wheel they had uh, they were ahead in astronomy but they didn't do this like i think that's a kind of neat comparison but the idea that you could you would come way far ahead and then just drag all these old cultural things with you that just i don't know i just yeah, kind of, because essentially, like us in in the in the West, okay, you could say that we're essentially medieval English. Um, we're the, like kind of their cultural descendants, right? Mm. But we don't do the things like we don't live in like little walled cities, and we don't do the things that they used to do. Um, yeah, we're not peasants like, or serfs, and we don't. Yeah, you know, if you if you want to look at any cultural thing that we've dragged forward, would probably be religion. Like you look at like like the Catholic Church essentially hasn't changed too much in the way that they worship and stuff like that in you know, many years. hundred years. Yeah. You know? So like maybe you could look at that, but. I don't know. Like, certainly we don't have slavery anymore. We don't have, uh, you know, like they had the the Romans were wearing togas. Like, that doesn't, yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, Rome was around, what, a thousand years? More than? 700 BC to 700 AD? So 1500 years? And even they, they weren't, like, it wasn't like they were you know, one continuous culture for the whole time. Like, they changed within that time, right? Yeah, and I don't know enough about it. I'm just now getting into the history of of Rome and some other things, too. Suddenly, suddenly I'm not reading all sci-fi. It's a little bit of history thrown (laughs) in now, too. But, um, yeah, they talk about um, Julius Caesar had his own way of wearing a toga, you know, so that was like the latest fashion was to wear your toga like Julius Caesar did. So, but you know, it's interesting. Well, I don't know enough to say to say this with any confidence. But you know, like Roman soldier stuff, I I, I wonder if you wouldn't have recognized a seven hundred, you know, or five hundred BC Roman soldier even in five hundred AD. Um, I you know well, I don't know. Well, and I think the Romans tended to um, assimilate cultures to a certain degree. They certainly allowed them to, uh, when they took over, like, um, Israel and a lot of those places, they allowed them to keep their local culture, and some of it kind of bled in. Like we saw here, they they, they adopted Christianity because you used to have all the Roman gods and all this other stuff. So it's like they're capable of changing up to a point, but then it's like they're frozen in time that, you know, this is where we're going to lock them in place, which just doesn't make sense for any living human being. We tend to evolve and move on to the next level. And these guys are just stuck there. Unless you make the a Romans conscious did adopt, choice. Uh, yeah. The R- Romans did adopt Christianity at the end of the Roman empire. They though. did. Yeah. Constantine right. yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah, unless you make a conscious choice, like you know Amish or Mennonites or whatever, to sure. say that we're gonna, this is this is where we are planting our flag, and the, you know this is the culture that we want to maintain, you know, going forward for whatever the reasons might be. Um, but I, you didn't get the impression that that was the case. Um, it's it was a um, the the and you talked too about it was interesting how every time that they would go through one of these John Bar hinges. I, I hadn't thought about that until you said it. But essentially, human civilization really got more primitive. It went from, you know, what we would recognize as, you know, modern day stuff where something weird's going on on Mercury, we should study it and not get too carried away and start doing stuff that we don't really understand. And then we go through that one, and I can't remember. I swear it was some sort of what I'm going to call the Shire... Um, 
was the next John Barhinge. She set up an, a penny, set up an academy, and all those types of things. And so that was a little, you know, the, the schooling bit was a little backwards compared to what we're doing. It felt like, you know, like kind of the industrial age, pre-industrial age. Then the next John Barhinge took you back to the Roman culture, and centurions were there, and you know, Roman sailing ships t- between the stars. And then the next John Barhinge took you back to the Incas, where they're doing human sacrifices and dressing in feathers. Um, but they're also in an O'Neill cylinder, which is like, oh, I don't know. What did they say? <laughs> Ten miles long? You know, I don't know. It was huge. Were, yeah, it was just massive O'Neill cylinder. So, you know, the, I guess that is kind of one of the things that makes the books interesting is the whole juxtaposition of well, old stuff and new stuff. I mean, seriously, Roman centurion in space. Sure. How can you not yeah, if you, win with that? <laughs> if you sus- suspend your disbelief a little bit and just kind of go with the p- story, it's fine. But like I say, if you start thinking about it too much, and I almost kind of wish – I don't know how you would have done it with a, a life form that kind of – you know, they're not ignoring people. They're using them. But you know, uh, if there would have been some story about manipulating the, the histories and manipulating these uh, timeline or universes – uh, because it's easier, like you say, the more regressive a culture is, the easier it is to control them. Because you know, do this or your gods will be angry with you. Um, you know, uh, each way, you know, you, each iteration they went backwards like that, and they were building more hinges. So it, I can see kind of a correlation between you know moving them backwards on the societal scale to get them to do what they want uh, by doing all this stuff, but there was no backstory to even indicate anything like that outside the cosmic forces I guess. Well you talk about them getting them to do what they want and I'm going to say what you're referring to as them there was that subterranean life form. Yes. Yeah and that is a legitimate thing because I do think that that's why those John Bar hinges were happening like they were happening. They were looking for more malleable Right. Help whether you know it happened to be humans in this case, but they were looking for somebody who would take these kernels and you know build hatches throughout the galaxies. Galaxies. Um, so, um, the, you know, obviously, twenty-first century humans didn't do too well at that because all they would do is sit there and study it. Um, they needed folks who would just, you know, take it and use it for what it was worth and go do, you know, wild and crazy things with it without asking too many questions. So, you know, that was the way they, they managed to do that. Yeah, it's it was interesting uh, concept. I mean, some of these, you know, this one was written in what, 19, no, 19, 2014. It was only a couple of years old. Um, it had the feel of an Arthur C. Clarke type of, you know, it was kind of like a rendezvous with Rama yeah. type thing. Sure. Um, and so it, w- it was kind of fun from that standpoint. It was a little bit of a hard science. Um, but, yeah, there's a whole lot of, you know, mulligans in this one, too. Even at the very end, um, one of, and and I thought it took them too long to get to this point. Um, they The John Bar hinges, for the most part, were essentially the same time period but a parallel universe a parallel history only at the very end of book two spoiler um does the john bar hinge jump them in time and basically you know same location just what amounts to billions of years worth of of time and so that was a whole different um experience too um, they were there talking about how evolution on Per Ardua had um, essentially merged Earth and Arduan life forms, and you know how things were recognizable but not. And they just and nothing was quite right, uh, and so that was kind of interesting as far as you know if you can imagine a planet billions of years into the future, um, and a lot of the things um, that were familiar from. Uh, even book one were kind of not the same Um, they were there but they weren't the same so there was like no going back yeah it was just um, yeah even the the, was it the twi uh, what they call them the builders yeah 
builders. Yeah, they, they weren't. The, they had grown and become something. Else. So yeah, the planet had evolved. How many was it? Like billions of years that they finally figured out that they had basically jumped forward in time. Yeah, I can't remember exactly, but three billion comes to mind. I don't know why. Yeah. And basically what they did was jump them ahead to, well, the end time, basically. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah, which, it was interesting, too. You talk about uh, these John Bar hinges and going back and forth between cultures. There there were people that were, you know, um, being displaced. They're, they're these artifacts of of evidence of a different timeline... Um, aside from being, you know, we we mentioned a, a grave stone, um, but essentially these people, there was like a half a dozen people that kept, you know, going through these these hinges and having memories of a previous and or different uh, time period, different history, and um, that displacement of, you know, try of of being in one timeline or one location, one planet. Um, and then trying to fit in and make a go of it under another timeline. That was an interesting little exercise, I guess. Uh, some made it more successfully than others. Um, and the old greed and power thing came around again at the end. That was a little too convenient, though. Hmm. Which uh, one was that now? Oh, at the very end, there was a dude from the Shire, you know, the the evil husband, and um, one of the Inca ladies um, had gone through the hinge so that they could go to the final Ultima destination and be there at the end times because they were going to rule the galaxy, um, essentially. Spoiler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was that was so lame. Um, it also it also felt like the solar sail life form. It was like, <coughs> excuse me. It's like you knew this was coming. You knew these people were playing this role. You knew that's where they were going, and it got to that part, and they did their thing, and then they were gone, and that was that. And it's like you know that could have been done better too. That should have yeah. been bigger. <laughs> they than were it just was. much. They were just mustache twirling villains, as Basically. all they ended up being. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they did some villain things, and there should have been consequences to that, or you know, something. But it, it just, yeah, the editors should have called them to task on those two things. To me, that that uh, solar sail life form, and the uh, these two villains that went through time to get to, you know, the end all be all rule the galaxy crap and they just kind of just just went nowhere I mean it's just like that should right. have been a thing so yeah there was as much as I kind of liked this book these books there was some things that were frustrating and then there were right. other things that were um, yeah you just kind of had to swallow you know reality and go just go with it we we got uh, roman gladiators you know sailing with sailboats that go between earth and mercury or mars or wherever so well and and i don't know there was and i don't know maybe it didn't need to be a payoff per se but it you know in the end we find out this was kind of a family affair because um yuri eden from the first book uh, you know, he was cryogenically frozen uh, by his parents, uh, and he was thawed out and then sent off to uh, uh, Prajwa and all that other stuff and t- travels through the hinges and stuff. He has a daughter, and then, let's see, she has a daughter, too. But anyway, come to find out that Earthshine, one of his personalities, was actually Yuri's father. Father, yeah. So, yeah, so you had this whole kind of uh, family thing going on, which almost makes you wonder: Were these people predetermined somehow? Yeah, that family was thing was kind of—I couldn't decide if I thought that was a good thread or a bad thread. There were times why, different one. Why did why did he keep that such a secret? I don't know. Like it didn't like I don't know that whole thing about his 
his parents and, and and the whole thing like oh well we need to I need to protect you because of what I did like I don't know well, like okay no matter well first off they hated the heroic generation well why because they'd had these massive climactic changes and they tried to fix them that and they hated them for that like I never understood that part see this kind of reminds me of the expanse a little bit because the one guy in the expanse also had like eight parents am I right and um, same thing with Earthshine here there were like eight personalities in that and then there was the whole, um, you know, the the kind of family ties things that, you know, was happening here with Earthshine as well. And the whole hatred of, um, in the Expanse we were talking about how they hated Earthlings because they had destroyed Earth and, you know, whatever. Um, and it, you kind of felt that same way in um, Proxima and Ultima. It was like, you know, the the... the People, the heroic generation, whatever, you know, it was that whole, you guys screwed it up, you know, we hate you, and, I, I, you know, it's just, yeah, there's some parallels there, for sure. And but I never saw how they screwed it up. Like, well, yeah. They, 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 they tried to fix the problems, but, like, what was, what were they going to do? Well, they, you know, basically, <laughs> the problems were... You know something they created as well. As much as they tried to fix it, they also created those problems. And I got the impression that in trying to fix them, they actually made it worse. Um, so you know, it, it's like anything. You know, it's it's like a credit card. You go out and you spend all kinds of stuff, and then it's eventually the the bills come due, and oh crap, it's your fault yeah. because you spent money. But we really had a good time while that was going on. So you know, what you know, all that kind like- of stuff. Which like, felt like the heroic generation. It, it seemed that, like, uh, okay, climate change was one of the big things that they're dealing with. Okay, so the the oceans start to rise. Or, like, say this happens today, and you know, they there's a huge thing going on, and like, okay, well, the United States says, okay, well, we're going to make this thing, we're going to put precipitate in the upper atmosphere to try and lower the temperature, and then it has some other you know trickle down effect that's negative. Well. Okay, I can see how you know people would be upset with that, but like the extent that they went to, and like, but uh, what I'm saying is like, what were you gonna do? Right? Like, yeah. How can you hate? You're them having for... all these massive problems that, yeah. yeah, like that you're dealing with from previous generations that yeah. have passed on to you, and you're gonna put all of the blame on the people who are trying to fix the problem. Right. And like your parents' generation, because your grandparents yeah. had nothing to do with it, right? Yeah. And actually and not even just them. Like like it was so bad that like, okay, not only are they gonna kill me, but they're gonna kill my kid right, who's nineteen was, years old who yeah. has nothing to do with it at all. Yeah, that was like, a little just, hard to Yeah. Although you know a- and it's going to be so vilified for hundreds of years in the future that he's not even going to use his real name right. for the rest of his life. Right. Like, I just didn't, I didn't get that. Uh, yeah, that that mob mentality was kind of hard to understand. I mean, yeah, I would agree. I, that was like you guys in the states just arbitrarily saying, okay, the last generation of Americans that owned slaves, so like in the 1860s, we're going to blame them for all of the slavery that went on through the whole history of the United States. And we're going to blame them for well, the Great Depression and, and World yeah, War and I we're and II. Their descendants. Yeah. Like that's just, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There were there were some definite mulligans required for these books, without a doubt. Well, I think there was kind of a mindset there, and I again, I don't know if it's one of these things I put in the words because I read the book and I sort of saw certain things in there and kind of got kind of a feeling for what the author was thinking along certain lines. I think it's just the fact that they were vilified because if they. And you can't go back and change time, but they were vilified because if they hadn't done this, we wouldn't be in the pickle that we are. Um, and I think it becomes a scapegoat, some way to release anxiety, frustration, or whatever. Um, but you know, I I sort of still I I sort of see that um, 
in this country here, uh, I'm trying to tap dance around political issues here, but basically there's still, you know, you, you said slavery, there's still people that feel that, you know, we ought to be making repra- uh, reparations for the descendants of slaves. And so there is something akin to that. And we're not going to destroy, you know, uh, put these people to death, but there's still feelings that there should be, you know, reparations of some sort or another made. So I think there is that kind of mentality. Now he's taken it to the nth degree here, Well, but I, maybe I can see things like that. Best analogy we've got these days is because <laughs> everything goes back to Nazi Germany, right? You know, um, right. you really can't even say that. I mean, you, the minute you say Nazi Germany, yeah, like if, if you said, you know, my father was a colonel in the Gestapo or something, you know, that would immediately bring down all kinds of crap on you as a descendant even. I mean, it really would. Um, so... I don't. I don't know if I agree with that. Like, if you said my dad was a colonel in the Gestapo and he was good to me, that's one thing. If you said my dad was a colonel in the Gestapo and boy, they were a great organization, those are two different things. Okay. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Good point. Yeah. But it's well, yeah. I don't know if we have anything like that. And maybe that's the point the author was trying to make was that it, things were so bad and so out of control and so disruptive that that was you know essentially something that we had never experienced before and we have no point of reference for that I think he was trying to I uh, again I'm kind of thinking out loud here but I think he was kind of going for you know in the Bible you know it said the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the children or something to, the to that effect generation yeah yeah so I don't know and maybe there's this thinking that well I won't say it's genetic, but you're you're raised in this environment, so you cannot be any better than the environment that you were raised in. So, therefore, you're going to be just as bad as they are, so therefore we must contain you or mm. but something. Who, but on, on the flip side of that, who in the hell would have escaped that? Anybody who had parents would right. have had somebody in the heroic generation. I mean, so how can you condemn an entire generation um, because you know you're obviously condemning either your parents or your grandparents, and therefore yourself. I mean, seriously, who skipped out on that? So unless they were look, talking about you know essentially something like Gestapo in Germany, where you know um, there were certain people with certain jobs that had done certain things that you, you know were vilified. Well. But yeah, when they talk about the heroic generation. That's a generation. That's everybody. <laughs> I think maybe they were looking for a scapegoat, uh, something to pin their collective guilt on. And if they could blame this group of people and make it all their fault, they would feel better about themselves. Because, like I say, everyone would have had, uh, you know, a parent that had gone through that. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking it's just their way of assuaging themselves of guilt. Yeah. I, I think we're also suffering from. Uh, doing this book directly after doing The Expanse. Yeah. Because when when The Expanse, it's almost not fair, because that guy took, like, what was it, five years to do the entire history before he even thought about writing the story, right? Right. Right. So, whereas, you know, I, I, and again, this is not to say anything negative about Stephen Baxter, because... Uh, you know, most books are written of like, okay, I'm going to write a story rather than I'm going to write a, a massive history for this universe and then write a story when I'm done. Uh, I can I can see when you go to write a book, you know, what would be really cool is like, what if the Romans never, if Rome never fell and the Romans were like the dominant culture in the world? That's a okay. Let's write a story about that or like what you know, keeping on like what happened with if the Incas right. carried on. Oh, that that's that's kind of a neat story, but like. I don't think he he spent a whole lot of time saying, okay, well, how did the Romans get from, you know, like 100 AD up until the present day and then 300 years in the future and, you know, do a kind of a logical progression of what would happen. It's just kind of like, oh, look at those guys back there. What would happen if they were here now? Yeah. So basically, you know- it. 
he had the idea of centurions in space and yes. ran with it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because that's, I mean, I would rather have massive quantities of half-baked science fiction than, you know, mm. a half a dozen really supremo what because what happens with half-baked science fiction is you get kernels of, a, of ideas that get then get used over and over again until they get polished into something magnificent like you know the expanse right. um but you know yeah not every science fiction book or story or movie or whatever is going to be um completely well even just internally consistent um, the the idea that you have to give them mulligans, I'm okay with that. And and yeah. and to some extent, even Proxima and Ultima was internally consistent. They didn't really break their own rules. They dropped a lot of balls. Again, the solar sail life form and the whole two evil villains at the end. I mean, those could have been written better. And honestly, you know, I'll I'll, I'll lay it on the uh, editors. Because seriously, it probably went through, I don't know how many people, a dozen people or something, you know, mm. at least, um, before these things go live. And the fact that nobody said, you know, how come you have that stupid solar sail life form in there that <laughs> never really does anything? Why don't we just take that out and make these books a little bit shorter? Um, I, I would have liked to have been there at the editing thing. was like, uh, what's the deal with this character? Like, what's the point here? Right, yeah. Why? Yeah. What, do we really yeah. need to have these two two evil dudes that just kind of come and show up at the the very end and you know kind of they don't even screw things up. I mean yeah. they just they just they just are there anyway. So, so something that that this book kind of brings out that I don't know if we've ever talked about before, but like I think one of the most interesting like as a, as a intelligent self aware race we suffer from the fact that we don't know any other you know independent other life forms to compare ourselves against so we don't know what areas were ahead or behind or you know we don't, just cuz we can't compare ourselves to anybody else and if or when we do eventually find another intelligent you know race i think it'll be one of the most interesting things is to say like you know for them to look at us and say like wow you guys took forever to figure out that, you know, evolution. Or, holy cow, like, you guys, in the 20th century, you were able to, you know, send space probes that were actually able to get out of your own solar system? That was pretty good. Like, like But we don't know what areas we're, we're ahead or behind on because we can't compare ourselves to anybody else, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, stuff like... Because you do... Because we can look back at uh, cultures in human history where, like we were, like I was saying before, where like the Incas, wow, they did all this great stuff with astronomy, but they never developed the wheel, right? Like you can see places where certain cultures were really advanced in some areas, and then really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, backward in other areas. Right? I just mentioned I've been reading history books. I was I've been reading the history of England, and um, they were talking basically. I was reading it over supper tonight, even that um, because of climate change actually um there was what we think of as the dark ages i mean it it literally took them a thousand years to recover from um some famines and some dark ages some summers that never happened in the 700s um or 500 600s um and it, it was literally the you know 16 1700s before like population and industry and a few other things went back to those levels and so yeah the whole um you know we we don't even know what would have happened for ourselves if that had been a straight line and and the whole idea that you know we kind of we didn't even just kind of straight lined it we you know they call them the dark ages for a reason um yeah that that we we don't have i mean it even comparing east versus west, you know, even in in Ultima and Proxima, they talk about the Zin, 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 whatever you want to call them, X I N, um, Chinese. Oh, the Xin. Yeah, the Chinese. Yeah. Um, and so the the idea that you know we've in the west have our own culture, and in the east there was a whole another cultures. There's several um, that went on their own trajectory too. 
um, that we don't really recognize and talk about. And that, even that was barely... I mean, of all the cultures they could have pulled into this book, I mean, Chinese would have been an obvious one. The fact they went with Romans and Incas was curious. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we, we kind of trashed this book on certain levels. But <laughs> we kind of did, and it's not fair. No, the book's no, good. No, the, the reason you should read this book is because it's a for the characters because you you do kind of I guess that's why I kept reading I wanted to find out about the characters and see the, these develop even sort of a family history you know uh, set in a sci-fi world so read it because it's uh, I think some interesting the characters are you know kind of interesting some of the things that they go through are kind of interesting kind of gloss over you know some of the rough spots don't pay that too much attention because actually i don't think it's a bad story it's just when you start critically thinking about it you know you find holes but that you can do that with any story if you want to work hard enough just you know go with the flow read the story and and kind of enjoy it yeah don't pick it apart and when you get down to the end of it it really is kind of thought-provoking it's like okay what would it be like if romans sailed the you know solar system um, and how how crazy would it be to live in a uh, O'Neill cylinder that had, you know, an Amazon jungle? Um, so you know, there, there's all kinds of. It's a fun experience. I mean, it's it's really kind of a fun experience to read the book, and you do kind of get. Uh, if you've made it through Proxima, you ought to finish up Ultima because um, it it there's too many you know things that are left out there hanging at the end of of Proxima and Ultima does tie that up you know it's a satisfactory ending I mean it it, it's there's not like a cliffhanger and you're not waiting for book three it it wraps it up Um, but yeah it's a uh, it it can be kind of thought-provoking at times Um, I don't know if this is one that if you read it a second time you know much later if you would get something else out of it or not. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure well, I'm willing to well, put the time into it to find out. No. I would like to go back and reread the last, I don't know, chapter or two, whatever, where they're kind of talking about this, um, these multi-world, multi-verse uh, that, that that is created there and how they become extinct or you know blink out of time or whatever just kind of go and try to wrap my head around that one more time but yeah i don't know as far as going back and rereading i don't i don't know that i would get too much more out of it yeah and and honestly i um if i were to recommend something i would actually take notes i mean especially with some of the stuff that's going on with the John Bar hinges and the people involved and the ships and what planet they're on and what parts of the history are jiving or not jiving. I mean, there's times when I was reading this going, man, I wish I'd had written down what had happened back in chapter 13. So, cause now in chapter 18, I'm lost those details. So yeah. But it was a good, like I say, it was a good book. It was a good read. I, I, it was kind of in the in the vein of like an Arthur C. Clarke Rendezvous with Rama type of thing. Um, I, you know, I'd recommend it. I'd give it a four out of five. Well, I'm trying to think. Didn't Stephen Baxter partner with uh, Clark to do a book? Mm, don't know about that. Uh, I was uh, going to try and look that up quick, but yeah, and their writing styles. Because um, one thing that one criticism they've had of Clark, he can write good stories, but his characters tend to be a little, um, a little weak. Well, here, I mean, his characters were pretty good, but you know, uh, and he had some good hard science in there. It's just that the story didn't exactly hold together sometimes. But I'm not finding here. But I'm pretty. I thought he had collaborated with. Uh, Clark on something. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, oh, he wrote collaborating on the sequel to Arthur C. Clark's classic story, A Meeting in Medusa. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. More reading. But, <laughs> sure. Oh, I think that's about it. Any cool. tech from these universes that you would like to have? Uh, well, a... Uh, 
the spinning cylinder in space that's like 10 miles across or whatever is kind of cool. I do like the hatches, the idea you just open yeah. it. Rather than that pesky space flight thing, you just open up a hatch, walk through, and you're on another planet. I actually want to call you the the oh, essentially cool. the the robot that turned into that kind of like the Mars rover lived way beyond his uh, engineered lifespan and grew to be of what I would call pretty much his his own little sentient self, um, and and he really did turn out to be a key part of the story, but he also turned out to be kind of a really cool character. Um, if you consider a you know a motherboard a character, so anyway, <laughs> okay, that's going to wrap up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at SciFiTechTalk.com where there's some cool space junk available for purchase. Pop into the forums there, take part in the conversation. Love to hear your opinion about uh, Proxima and Ultima. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at SciFiTechTalk, or if you have ideas or comments, you can send them to greetings at SciFiTechTalk.com. Reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Jeff, where can folks find you? People can follow me on Twitter at BroncoSire. That's S-Y-E-R. Mike, how about you? I can be found on Twitter at uh, DSC Chipman, and I have my about.me page at about.me slash, uh, slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. And I wanted to throw a, a quick plug out there. Um, last night on Geekiest Show Ever, we had J.F. Dubow on there, and he was talking about his book, God in the Shed. And there's about, uh, as of this recording, there's about, uh, I think, 11 days left for him to reach his goal. I think he needs about another 200 books. So uh, any of you people out there that you know have read uh, Life Engineered and like it and want to read something else by uh, J.F., which is, this is a, a different, this is sort of a, uh, what do you call it, an urban um uh, uh, Folklore uh, thing? Folklore, yeah, yeah, type story. It involves a god in a shed. So, I mean, it's not <laughs> sci-fi. But, you know, if you find this story, uh, that story interesting, I think you'll find this one interesting. But, you know, go over to Ink Shares, check them out, and, you know, it'd be kind of nice to get him, you know, over the over the hill if we could. But uh, go uh, go check out the uh, Geekiest Show Ever where we interviewed him last night, and then just go to Ink Shares and check him out. Sounds good, and I will totally back that. Jeff Dubois is an awesome author and a cool dude and deserves all the support we can possibly give him. Everybody go out and buy a couple of copies of his book. Uh, I don't even care if you read it or not. Just buy it. <laughs> uh, I can be found out on Twitter, though, too, at uh, Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L. And links to the other blogs, podcasts, and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. Next week, we're going to be covering a short film, so we'll see how that goes. But it's uh, The World of Tomorrow, where a little girl is taken on a mind-bending tour of her distant future. Uh, But that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future.